Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to the Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast for the second rest day recap. As you can see, or if you're listening at home, it's just me, Benji. I've got a note here. It says, if there is a World Tour race going on in the Benelux region and the Vias I refuse to comment on any other races. So just me for the World Tour Rest Day recap. We have an interview with Jack Hay coming, but I'll do a quick recap of the general classification in this going into the uh, third week. Odd Christian Eiking, 54 seconds ahead of Guillaume Martin, 1.36 to Roglic, then Enric Mars at 2.11, about 40 seconds plus behind Roglic, then Lopez, Haig, Bernal, Yates, all staggered about 30 to 40 seconds after each other with Yates on 4.34, which is about three minutes after Primoz Roglic. I speak to Haig in this interview about whether he thinks Guillaume Martin and Odd Og- Christian Eichen will even lose that much time. Are they now sort of fourth to seventh place threats, as well as who are the threats to overperform in the TT, what he expects from Lopez in the TT, particularly as he fights for the podium in this third week of the Vuelta Espana. I also get his perspective from someone in the race on Movistar chasing Sepp Kuss yesterday. But the week we have coming up ahead in the Vuelta Espana, we have some proper mountain stages, which is possibly what Movistar's apathy to pacing was, you know, why they weren't pacing so hard in this second week. Tomorrow, stage 16, it looks like a yes, but oh, he's not here anymore. It, it looks like an easier sprint stage or a Michael Matthews stage or a breakaway. 17 is a mountain stage. They have two, I think this is the same climb, 7.5Ks at 9%, but there's a decent valley in between. And then a 40-kilometer valley before the mountaintop finish to Cavadonga, which you might know pretty well, 8Ks at 9%. Certainly expect time gaps there. Stage 18 is another back-to-back brute, 163Ks, but again, Big valleys between these climbs, 10Ks, 8.5%, 20Ks valley, 30Ks valley, 8Ks, 8%, 40K valley, and then a shorter climb like the, second, the last one yesterday before the possibly the hardest climb in the race, 14.6Ks at 10%, the Alto del Gamenteru. That's probably where Movistar and Rolich think, okay, these guys up top are going to ship a lot of time on that stage is that's what they're expecting at least 19 looks like a standard transition sprint stage that won't really concern anybody and in stage 20 it looks like the raid stage where it's just medium mountain and like over 4,000 meters climbing I think in the stage it's up and down jagged all day the last thing Primoz Roglic will want to see before the final time trial which is 34 kilometers long and is also up and down all day. What to expect from Lopez, Mars, Haig even on the TT, even Roglic? I'm not sure it's hard to predict a third week TT like that, particularly one with a lot of hills. Thanks, of course, to our show partner, LaCole, for keeping Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast going. If you want to support us and our show partner, you can check LaCole, who produced performance cycling apparel out 
www.lacole.cc. Some other housekeeping. Obviously, we'll have Benelux Tour full coverage on the podcast. GP Plouet for the women as well as a Simac Ladies Tour recap coming later today as probably separate episodes but without further ado let's introduce jack haig who if you might remember he kicked off his season probably really came to our attention as it being in a different level this year on Juplan in criterium de dauphine where he attacked the richie port and thomas group and joined up and then i think got caught on the descent he then was looking in good shape in the Tour de France on stages one and two, I think back-to-back top fives. So he looked very good on stage one in the punchy finishes, but then had that unfortunate crash at the in stage three before that sprint finish, one of many crashes on that stage. He had a severe collarbone break, had to get that repaired, wasn't a straightforward collarbone repair, time off the bike, um, and then straight into the Vuelta, which was quite close to the Tour de France this year, then comes into the Vuelta, dunning, you know, having done what he could to prepare, but still it's not the same as an out, two altitude camps and normal preparation. And Picon Blanco, I guess, showed that he didn't come in firing, lost a bit of time there, gained it back in the break on stage seven, and ever since he's been there or thereabouts with the likes of at least Miguel Angel Lopez and sometimes Marcin Roglic on these hilltop finishes. He's sitting in sixth on GC and honestly, and probably gunning for a, a sure top five and maybe better, which would be a career best performance from him in the GT in a Grand Tour. We caught up with him on his rest day in between lunch and massages. Welcome back again, Jack Haig. Now, frequent guest of the Lantern Recycling Podcast, sitting sixth on GC, 335 on the second rest day of the Welter Espana after not the hardest second week parkour-wise, Odd Christian Eichen's got that 335 buffer. Guillaume Martin with about a 235, 240 buffer. If the mountains keep getting raced with a steady pace, if Movistar don't really try anything against Roglic Jack and then they suffer collateral damage, the two guys in one and two, how concerned are you now that those guys won't actually slip so much time, which is what seems to be assumed but hasn't happened yet? I think I maybe expected them to have a little bit more slippage on the time over the weekend now. And obviously they didn't really lose anything other than a couple of seconds on Saturday. And like you mentioned, Rodlich has the really good time trial sort of in his back pocket. And I don't think they're too much of a concern to him and maybe even Enric. But definitely when you look down from sort of Lopez, having a decent time buffer there, and if it continues the way it is now, it, it could become quite a big threat for those sort of third to sixth or third to eighth position on GC. I think maybe yesterday uh, would have been quite a good opportunity for teams to try and distance them if it was possible, especially on the second last quite long climb. We had quite a long, hard day leading up to that. Even our team or if Movistar or if anyone else had more guys left at that point and really pushed the pace in the last five kilometers of the second last climb we would have seen maybe odd chris niking and uh game get distance there and then actually lose quite a bit of time coming into the finish yeah exactly it was a super fast finish like i was even surprised yates got away because like that last the last last climb the 8k four percent one like a super fast climb as well and i guess rain tarame you can he's on a breakaway stage and you like the skill set needed to do that is actually kind of similar to what he was doing yesterday, which is like 
ride hard all stage at a moderate tempo in front eating the wind and like I couldn't believe how well Intermarche controlled yesterday actually yeah and almost a little bit unnecessarily you look back in hindsight that kind of made it be motivating for say Roderick or myself or uh Movistar to try anything because the pace was kind of pretty solid all day but it wasn't crazy hard and he was probably quite confident in being able to hold on when it was that type of pace whereas if we'd really stepped it up and yeah if the pace was 20 watts 30 watts 40 watts higher we would have seen a real thinning thinning out of that group Movistar this second week pretty much didn't try anything unless you can count Lopez like last you know that attack to gain four seconds that's not going to be enough if they, if they keep doing stuff like that you they no way they can win the Vuelta what have you seen from them? Mask closed Yates the first attack yesterday, and then when Mask closes Yates, then Roglic has to close Mask, and then everyone's all in. And then Yates goes again, and Movistar were like, well, just why why expend so much on this? Do you think they're going for the podium now, just second and third? Do you think they the parkour really didn't support them trying anything crazy this second week, and they're like, we'll try to get Roglic 17 and 18? I think maybe... They would have had really try and change up the race, but having lost uh, Valverde as well as the uh, younger Swiss rider, it's quite strong riders that they've lost and are now two men down. Maybe something that didn't get shown on the TV was yesterday when Sepp Kuss got away in that quite large group of 20-odd, 25 riders, they actually committed a lot of their team to bringing that group back again. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see where their plan is, whether they say, okay, Second and third, GC, we're happy with that because I think if they want to try and win the welter with Enric, they're going to have to sacrifice Lopez at a certain point and then you lose out on having two people on the podium. Yeah, I'm going to be quite curious to see how it plays out over these next sort of three or four quite hard stages. Yeah, Mars seems to be like he's riding in the wheels a lot more than Lopez they've used in the first week to like close gaps when they had to or attack earlier. Mars seems to be like their AA leader. So you're right. I think if anyone's going to get burnt, it's Lopez. Um, do you think they should have closed Kuss down? Like why, why close him down? It's a tough one because if you look back at the stage now, they didn't only three riders stayed away at the finish there because of the pace that uh, Intermarche were setting. So they didn't have a massive time gap there. Maybe it would have changed if they had all 25 riders there because obviously it uh, all came back again. Yeah, it, it was interesting. And they did go into a little bit of panic stations and sort of get on the front maybe a bit faster than they needed to. But if they wanted to snap close it like they did, they needed to ride the way they did and just burn guys. Like, as you said, the gap was going to come down into Marche pacing all day. And the gap was only to the finish, like two fifty to Micah. And, you know, that's with into Marche riding steady. It's very, very hard to win a grand tour stage by five minutes. Like Ben O'Connor, when he won that stage by five minutes, that's like the biggest margin in a long time or it's a big margin even when UA weren't pacing at all and I was like if you let Coos okay not ideal if he gets back to where Lopez is on GC probably still would have been behind Mars and then it's like that almost creates more difficulties for Jumbo Visma who probably would still be like nah Coos it's all about Roglic like forget about it but I don't know because right now Coos is in full like any dangerous gap he's on the front 
closing it down. And he burned himself on that uh, the Val de Peñas to high end stage. He lost more time because he was pacing for Roglic. So I'd almost I was like, also if Movistar wanted to try something on the stage yesterday, well, what better than having Roglic best domestique not with him? when Lopez maybe attacks and is Chrysler going to be able to do it? So that was my rationale. Of course it's risky, but they're, they're behind the eight ball right now. Like they need to risk something to win. And that's why I'm looking at like, they're not looking like a team willing to really throw it all in to, to beat Roglic. No, I, I agree with you. I think the tactic that they used yesterday was a tactic of a team that is going for second and third on GC and isn't going all in to try and win. Because if you think about it, Spanish team, Welter to Espana, if they get second and third on GC, both of the guys on the podium, it looks pretty good for the sponsor and the team. Of yeah. course, it would look better if they, they won, but Rodlich and the TT that he has makes that prospect and they have to go all in. With that TT, 34 kilometers long, like a long TT and it's not flat, like there's... 1700 meters, seven and a half percent climb, but the actual climbing is much more than that. It's there's almost no flat in it. Is that TT one that suits you more? Like, do you think actually on a good day, say Lopez has a below average day, you should be backing yourself to take time against him on that sort of TT? Yeah, we kind of had this discussion the other day with one of the sports directors and. Lopez is a bit interesting because sometimes he actually pulls out yeah, a good time. Algarve. Yeah. <laughs> and sometimes he also pulls out complete shockers. Like yeah. last year, Tour de France was on the podium, drifted all the way back, lost like five minutes in the time trial. So it's actually really hard. And I said that if I was in 30, 20 seconds of him in third place, I'd be going into the time trial somewhat confident but not, not convinced that I was going to get on the podium because he could pull out a ripper TT and we'd be on par almost, or he could lose two minutes. Mars is the same as well. Mars can, his TT looked, he looks like a different rider this welter and his prologue was really, really good. But yeah, he's also had not like not the best TTs. I think he lost two and a half minutes to Bogaccia, which would be like a minute to Roglic in the Planche de Belfi TT last year. So like on Roglic's worst day, worst TT of his life, yeah. he still put a minute into Enric last year. So I guess people, I think people are underestimating how even, you know, I don't really agree that there's like a third week Roglic. I don't, I think last year's Vuelta, he was just cooked. But I think even if he has a bad TT, he's still... Like he'd have to crash or something to not put minutes plus into Mars and Lopez. But yeah, I think who else is around your neck of the woods in GC? Like Coos, uh, don't his TT is not great. There's also Yatesy, Adam is quite close or like in that same ballpark area. And since he's moved to Ineos, he's been pulling out some half decent TTs this year. Like if you look at the one in Wealth Catalonia, I think he did a really good time trial yeah. there. And uh, we were kind of talking about it together the other day in the bunch. And he was saying that a lot of it, he thinks, just comes from lots of small things adding up when he moves. He now has maybe a slightly faster bike, slightly, slightly faster helmet, slightly faster skin suit. And all this is kind of adding up to him now doing half-decent time trials. Like He's obviously not beating Felipe Garner and TTs, but he's no longer losing a lot of time. Exactly. And especially it's a lot better to be a GC contender. That's like a guy that just ships 20 seconds, 30 seconds to Roglic 
and then you, you're like, okay, I'm a good climber. I can try and make it up somewhere else versus you put yourself in a three, in a two, three minute hole. That's like in modern grand tour riding, like that's almost impossible to dig yourself out of, even if you're like do the best climbing performance ever. Yeah. And I think you, you can see how much time trials are having an effect on GC now and how much of an asset having a good time trial like Pogacar or like Rodic actually benefits you. You can race so much more conservatively in the mountains. So for you personally, you're now Tour de France, you look good. Dauphiné attacked, was it on Col de Juplin uh, on stage eight? You're going really well in the Vuelta, especially like you've, you've come good uh, and like at the end of the first week. Are you doing better numbers um, like every day? Are you like, oh, my God, like this is a pace I would get dropped at before? Is it just because the climbs are steadier or is it just that you're doing your good numbers but you're able to do them every day now, um, I guess, not, not including pick on Blanco? Um, it's an interesting one. I actually don't look too much into the numbers and uh, I was a little bit disappointed stage three pick on Blanco. I thought I was going to be a little bit better than I was. Kind of makes sense. Like I broke my collarbone, what, six and a half weeks before or seven weeks before that stage. I took almost two and a half weeks without the bike. I did three weeks, of, uh, four weeks of training, turned up to welter, lost three minutes on stage three. I always sort of had in the back of my mind that I thought I was going better. And then slowly as we progressed on through the welter and through that first week and getting to the breakaway and then having that stage nine performance really gave me a lot of confidence. I think I would have had similar condition going into the Tour de France. I felt really good in Criterium Dolphinet before it. I think I showed I had really good condition there on the long climbs as well. And I think I could have done quite well, but obviously it's quite easy to say that in hindsight and not having done the whole three weeks of the Tour because it was also a pretty crazy race. I don't think anything dramatically improved in myself to be at the level that I am here. Who's a rider you think is like you, that could be you 2.0, you next year, a rider you see who's, um, I don't know, like instead of they don't actually get not many opportunities and they actually like he actually could be um, a guy competitive in one week and three week races, even on, you know, riding for his own GC. People don't just don't know it yet. Is it someone like, Nick Schultz is it someone like or even a good client like is Santiago Butrago like that guy can actually win grand tour stages from the right breakaway I think both of the guys you mentioned just now especially Nick Schultz and I have a close relationship with him and uh I think he's probably a bit of an underrated rider um he did really well in the smallest stage race I forget which one it was coming into the welter just now and I was kind of expecting him to have a bit more of a free role here. Um, and I really think with a bit more support and care and experience to do really well in uh, these week-long stage races. Santiago, uh, he's actually a big talent and he's still super young. And I think sometimes people forget how yeah, hard he's 21. it is. <laughs> yeah. And also how hard it is being so young, moving from Colombia to try and live in Europe and do a cycling season here, you're kind of a bit alone and all of this affects you a lot. Yeah. And like I was, that's what I'm like now trying to start looking out for is like who has a combination of can climb quite well and is actually like Schultz is actually quite fast in a finish. Um, 
when he does get opportunities, how does he go? Like, yeah, it's, and I think almost cycling is reversing now where everyone wants the next Pogaccio. Everyone wants the next Egan Bernal or Avonapol. And they're starting like, got to be 20, 20 or 21, give you a three-year deal. It's like, there still are the guys who are now peaking at what used to be the old peak at 25 to 28. It's, there's, mate, there's also guys that do well younger. And I think cycling was too far the other way before where it's like, if you're 22, you can't do a grand tour. You, you burn out. It's like, well, uh, it's obviously you can win a grand tour at 22 if, if you're that sort of person. So I think, yeah, cycling is now looking at 25 roles and it's like, what, what can I get out of you? And it's like, well, Therese Davenines, I think, signed his first world tour contract at like 24 and he's 38 and he like let out Philippe to get the yellow jersey at the start of the tour. So different, different guy. To actually succeed at a world tour level, you need to have much more than just talent. You need to also be able to read a bike race really well. We get left alone a lot of the time at home and we have to look after ourselves at home. And you need someone that has the talent, also has the mind and the brain to be able to manage everything that goes on also in the background. Because I had a bit of a conversation today with Mark Padoon and he's an exceptional talent. We've seen that in the Criterium Dolphine stages. He was third in Walter Burgos before coming here. But he still has a lot of learning to do to be able to utilize that talent that he has to be more consistent and get more results. And I personally think he's probably one of the biggest talents that we have on the team here at this race, but he lacks so much in other departments. It's hiding that talent underneath it. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, you know, what a full saying said, he didn't eat carbohydrates for four years and like <laughs> in his twenties. And yeah. then he changed the nutritionist, uh, the Stano, who I think might now be the Yumbo nutritionist. I don't know. But, and then he's like, oh uh, yeah. Is that the one? No, the nutritionist is actually working for us now. Oh, okay. Uh, so I think he was in Jumbo and then worked for the Stana and then he's now okay. employed here. But I think also why we're seeing such young guys uh, doing so well now is there isn't as much misguided information, I think. I think teams are now employing people like Marcel, the nutritionist, that is giving quite well-educated information quite clearly and people aren't getting lost in these bad wives' tales of what you should be doing or what people think you should be doing and it's more factual now. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, like guys trying to lose weight during races, not in carbohydrates. And then it's like, why, why am I consistent? It's like, well, you're not eating properly. All right, Jack, best of luck with the rest of the world for Spain. I don't want to take up too much of your time on the rest day. People forget actually how busy the guys are on rest day. They've got massage, team talks, <laughs> sleep in, et cetera. Hope you, hopefully we can see you fighting it out in the mountains. I'm looking forward to watching it for the rest of the week. But yeah, any last, any last thoughts, any stage? Uh, actually, I won't tell you which stage you're going to target. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no worries. Uh, thanks, guys, and thanks for the support. And yeah, we went on a bit of a random tangent there at the end outside of welter information, but uh, uh, interesting. Thanks to Jack once again for coming on the podcast. Always interesting to hear his perspective on the race and also what's going on outside the race and the pressures or other things that are going on in a world tour cyclist life that we might not think about that actually does affect their performance 
a lot. But thanks, of course, to Lacole for supporting the podcast and all your support during the Vuelta a España. It's been a long grind with the World Tour races and now Benelux Tour starting, and then we'll have the World Champs coming up. So make sure you check out our coverage of Benelux Tour as well, which might give a good insight into who will be going well for the World Championships later this year. But I hope you're all well, and I'll see you later with the Welter Stage 16 recap tomorrow. Ciao.